is the Enter Sad Men podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. Hello again, and welcome to the Enter Sad Men podcast. It's fantastic to have your company again. I'm Richard. I'm here with Mark and Steve, as usual. And we are about to embark on another journey through hard rock and heavy metal, reviewing another three albums that we are going to put into our hard rock and heavy metal hall of fame over 180 albums in there uh, and the episode is always themed as you know tonight's theme is the human body and uh, we've chosen as we do three albums based on that theme from the years 1970 to well tonight 1996 we review them in a very very different way and that's what makes this podcast special in that we dissect these albums track by track and give it a score. So we really dig out where the gems are and we really dig out where the crap is. If you want to find out more about us and you haven't found it already, please do check out entersadmen.co.uk. Everything is there, including the Hall of Fame, including our reviews, including everything else that we are up to and a little bit about us so on to tonight's episode then and we better talk about what we chose so it's the human body and how did we do gents in uh, in selecting an album for tonight's episode mark well we had a lot to go at for once because some of these themes can be a bit tortuous can't they we end up sort of bending rules and and blurring lines and or whatever but uh i thought about dio's sacred heart and thought no nah thought about Dokken's Tooth and Nail. I thought, no, I'm not ready for Dokken. Saxon's Strong Arm of the Law, yes, could have done that, but didn't. Just for the just for the crack and to kind of see how Richie reacted to it, I thought, what about Voivod? Nothing face. <laughs> that would be a hell of a week for Richard. And then I thought, no, I can't do that to him either. And then I thought, uh, oh, I'll do pictures, heavy metal ears. And I thought, no, Steve's, Steve's going to do it. Without a shadow of a doubt, Steve will pick that one. So I thought, well, what else can I do that's to do with the human body? And then I thought, well, there's only one choice. Ladies and gentlemen, spinal tap, break like the wind. I'll tell Steve, you what, how can, how can you not be in the mood for Dokken? That's what I want to know. How can you not be in the mood for Dokken? I think I was not, I, I played it last week after, when we finished recording the last one. And I just think, don't think, uh, you know, 12 midnight, I was quite there for, <laughs> you know what I mean? If I played it at a different time, maybe I'd have gone for it. But yeah. in the end, I just thought, do you know what? A bit of spinal tap, a bit of light relief. Yeah, that's fair enough. I'm, I'm not going to complain that you're an arse. I mean, I'm, well, I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> no, not specifically right now. But I mean, because um, the tooth and nail was number two on my list. Um, but as soon as this theme came up, I knew straight where I was going. There was no faffing around, and you knew as well. Could the, kind of the, it would be very high on my shortlist, which was um, "Outer Hand" by Coney Hatch, um, just a little gem from Canada way back when. Um, which I don't even know why I fell in love with it at the time, but um, spot on, proper rock, proper rock from the early yep. eighties. Mm-hmm. Good stuff, good stuff. And then, and then Richard went somewhere where nobody, would, none of us would have thought to have gone. Well, it, was 19, well, it was 1996 for one reason, but we knew it was coming. <laughs> yeah. We knew, we knew it was within the parameters. <laughs> we knew it was what, Steve? We knew it was what? <laughs> <laughs> yes, on the theme of the human body and talking about coming, it's an album that, whilst 
outside our formal parameters of uh, 1995, we consider it a bookend, I think, in terms of our, our love of this uh, this genre of music. And um, so I thought it was about time to introduce it. I wasn't sure quite how else we'd actually find a, a theme that it would match because uh, the title of the album is Load by Metallica. And the for those of you who don't know, the references to the human body are, of course, the semen, blood and urine uh, that are on the artwork on the cover. And hence, I presume a slight sideways reference given that it's semen to the title of said album. So, yeah, we've got Metallica's Load from 1996. So that to finish the show, we do these in chronological order. So Steve will be to start in a minute. Mark's in the middle. But before we do that, please do just have a little listen to a few snippets from each of these albums to hear what we've been filling our ears with this past week or so. you enjoyed that i'm sure there's some some stuff on there you know some stuff on there perhaps you didn't and should you know more about it should you go out and buy any of these that you if you haven't got them already well we're about to tell you uh, as we go into another sad men podcast and we start with steve and his choice for tonight which is outer hand by county hatch steve opening album sleeve notes mm, i'm suggesting there's a fair few who don't know much about county hatch judging by the sales figures of the album which i can <clears throat> which i can find very little about so um this is a, a well-kept secret county hatch their second album is the one i've chosen which is outer hand for the obvious hand reference released in 1983 and it is good honest rock by a bunch of canadians who didn't get much airplay didn't get much notice just seem to do their stuff and do it well and never appeared on the fame radar unfortunately formed in 79 in toronto um, and named after the colney hatch nut house in london i should have a sick after it shouldn't it i guess because they've misspelt it but um apparently it was near where the guitarist andy current's parents had lived before emigrating i only found that out recently so there you go you learn learn a lot on this pod. This, as I say, is their second album, put out on Anthem Records. It was Vertigo in this country, and it was produced by Max Norman, which is, you know, a big deal in itself, I think. Kim Mitchell, who was um, a, a big noise in Canadian rock, produced their debut. Um, but, they, you know, they got Norman flown out to Toronto to twiddle the knobs for this. And um, anyway, this didn't do well, nor did Coney Hatch. They got very little radio airplay in Canada, even though I have 
since also discovered that Canadian broadcasters were kind of duty-bound to champion homegrown music. And for whatever reason, it just didn't happen for Coney Hats. And which is a shame because there's a kind of, there's a kind of Kiss, ACDC, Death Letters, a Saxon-style simplicity to the riff-making. But there's also stuff on here which I think, if marketed properly, is fairly commercial and very good. I think they suffered for having two vocalists. I haven't got a clue why, because one's brilliant and the other one's kind of okay. So you kind of think, just stick with the one who can sing very well. I don't know. Your, your singer's your saleable figurehead, isn't he? Surely. Um, so I think that was an error, but small, small fry, really. Um, they apparently had quite the reputation for their live sets, louder than loud. Um, Andy Curran admitting that they would cluelessly just turn the amps up to the max with any how any thought, no sound checks, no nothing, without any thought for how it might sound. He described them all as knuckleheads. Um, the irony of that being that the music is actually quite thoughtful and not full on heavy. There's some really good stuff and there's some really kind of creative stuff on here. Beyond the Rockers kind of doesn't really send, lend itself to a volume setting of 11, unlike a band that we may talk about later. A lot of tracks anyway. Yeah, Carl Dixon, who is one of the singers, refers to this band as the Canadian wing of the new wave of British heavy metal. And I like that analogy, I do, because th th mm. this is nicely unreconstructed, fairly simple, but very, very listenable hard rock. You know, it's good stuff. Um, just a few facts about the album itself. As I say, Anthem was the label, Vertigo in the UK. It's 35 minutes long, nine tracks, five on one, four on the other. The studio was United Media in Thornhill, Ontario. Their second album, their first one, was the eponymously titled Coney Hatch in 82. Friction came out three years later, and that was pretty much it. They did reform later, but... Um, yeah, nothing really happened. Nothing ever happened. Carl Dixon is rhythm guitar and lead vocalist. Andy Curran is bass guitar and lead vocalist. And we'll talk about that dichotomy as we go. Steve Shelsky on lead guitar and backing vocals. And Dave Ketchum on drums and percussion. Mark knows. I've no need to tell him. I've thoroughly enjoyed a week in the company of Coney Hatch and specifically Out of Hand. And I hope you two boys have enjoyed delving into it as well. I have. I really like the balance of this band. I mean, the, the, the sound is, is fantastic, isn't it? So that melody, the power. And they're a properly balanced band in terms of how they work with each other. They leave space and there's there's no one really dominating. I've really enjoyed listening to it. And I would say I like this album, but I don't, maybe yet, love it. I would say there's some, and there's a couple of absolute crackers on here. I don't think there's any real duffers, but... Quite a bit of it for me didn't really grab me, you know, either by the, the throat, the heart or the bollocks. I think the songwriting probably lets it down a little at times. And, and maybe I need more time with it. I was thinking, well, is this me? Because the sound, the balance, I should really love this to death. And um, I don't. I just quite like it. Well, that's, that's, that's all right. That's fine. It's really interesting because it, it resonated with me immediately. And funnily enough, having revisited it, and, and I've I played two or three of these tracks a lot, an awful lot, but the whole album, there's two or three things that I thought, well, did I really like it that much at the time? Or or Because or, or, there's a couple of things on there that I think, yeah, yeah. okay. So it's the kind of reverse process that you're having and you think it might grow on you as you go forward. Uh, maybe I just got it all the wrong way around. But I, overall, yeah, it's, it, I think we're agreed on Overall, it's, um, it's it's a decent bit of work. Mark, I know you like it. I love this album. I really do. And I think it's interesting, Richard, that you you kind of said maybe it's it's the songwriting that lets it down. It, maybe it's a bit straight ahead. I, I think it, actually it's neither of those things. I was lucky enough that 
I kind of got the debut album when it came out. So that my first introduction to Coney Hatch was the moment they released the, the, the first album in 82. And, and I loved it from the moment I first heard it. I think Carl Dixon is just an incredible singer. I have no idea why Andy Curran is singing anything on either of these albums. Like Steve says, they're they're not bad, but you just kind of sit there going, it would have been a lot better if Dixon had been singing it. But I just think they are, for me, I've always kind of thought of them. And and I think it's really interesting that that Andy Curran described them as the sort of Canadian wing of the new wave of British heavy metal, because I've always, always thought of them as the kind of the across the pond equivalent of Tigers of Bantang. And the reason I think that is that I think their songs are quite quirky. They've got strange kind of rhythms and stops and um, and tempos to them. And they're not, I don't think, straightforward. I don't think it is straightforward rock. I think they do some interesting stuff mm-hmm. that you don't quite expect them to do you think there are a couple there are a couple of songs on here where you just go yeah that's entirely predictable and it's not and it's it's a worse album for that but there's a lot of stuff like shake it for example that is you uh, after the first track you think well who in their right mind thought that was where the album should go next but in some crazy way it kind of works so yeah, I, I think they're brilliant. I do. I think of them as a new wave of British heavy metal band. I always have done, but that it's kind of there's more AOR to it than kind of out and out heavy metal, isn't there? They, yeah. I mean, they could almost be an AOR band. And I think it's really interesting that on this album, the song that immediately grabbed me is the song that is least representative of the rest of the album. So yeah, an interest. It's been an interesting week with Coney Edge. Regular listeners to the pod will know that we do name check an awful lot of bands when we we are reviewing these albums, and we've got I've got a galaxy of who's who of early '80s rock with this album because um, there are so many reference points, you know, and and generally very favourable, apart from a video which I shall talk about forthwith.
track one of this nine-track album, as I say, five on the first, four on the back, is uh, Don't Say Make Me. It's a great opener, it really is. Such a solid start. Decent riff to open, plenty of power, great sing-along chorus, twin guitars, so plenty of beef. I love the little drops. Mark was talking about the sort of, you know, the punctuation in this album, and and, and I love the, the stops and the starts. I love the little drops going into the pre-chorus. The vocal ha- harmonies aren't exceptional, but they're not bad. If there's a negative, and it's a minor equivalent, it will turn up again. Um, the guitar solo seems slightly disjointed. Perhaps I'm nitpicking, but um, but the way it comes back out into the chorus, yeah, basically a really good song, really good opener. Stick it on loud and be prepared to shake your head. This is heavy metal, as it was in '83, and it's good. It's the only heavy metal song on it, mm. in my view. Um, and th- and this was the song that kind of grabbed me. I put it on, thought, right, this is Devil's Deck again, which yes. was in, I was entirely happy about because Devil's Deck from the first album is a great track. And this has got just a, a chorus to die for. I have not been able to stop myself from belting this out in the car. I wouldn't do it anywhere else. It's not fair on anyone. But in the car, it's just got, I just have to sing along to it. It's just brilliant. The, and you're right, the, the guitar solo is a bit disjointed, but... It's a wailing guitar solo, so that's okay. <laughs> There's a lot of wailing guitar on this, which I just <laughs> love. Is. I think that is <laughs> that is early 80s rock for me. Yeah. So now I'm very happy with this song. Mm. Yeah, me too. I, I think this is fantastic. That's a brilliant start. I mean, it's a big chorus, instant hook. The other thing I loved about it was the interplay between the guitars. You see if you've got the, you've got the headphones on. One in each ear, trading up beats, down beats, working really, really well together. So, yeah, I when I put this on for the first time, I thought, yeah, okay, yeah, this is this is going to be good. Yeah, and you think having done that, having struck gold straight away, you think, all right, I'll take another one of those. Thank you very much. And as Mark hinted, ain't what you get. You get um, track two, which is shake it. The, the immediate, the, the first obvious difference is that it's sung by Andy Curran rather than Carl Dixon. As I say, the, the, the duties are shared. And it's an odd one. I really like it. It's very groovy. It's kind of slightly dreamy. It's much slower. Uh, Andy Curran's bass guitar, very prominent, front and centre here. Um, again, I have a minor issue with the guitar solo, which, again, they come out of really nicely into the body of a kind of, I was trying to think of the right word, raiding my thesaurus, and, and it's a kind of sultry track. Mm. It's it's kind of it's an it's a really interesting juxtaposition with "Don't Say Make Me." I have no problem with that, um, and I'm very good at deciding what tracks go where on albums. But I have no problem with that, and I like it. I like it a lot. But it is very it, it's not what you thought would come. I'm still in a very very happy place with this. Mm. This first two tracks as a pair, yeah. Love the bass line on this. The really lovely sort of backline foundation and the vocals and the two guitars dancing over the top of it. Uh, it's got a really good groove. I like the little false ending. So I was still a very happy chap at the uh, end of track two. That worries me about track three, but we'll come on to that in a minute, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, like you, when I first heard this album, I kind of got to this point and thought, oh... Oh, that's yeah. a shame. But over the over time, I've really kind of grown to really like it, and I think I think sultry is a really good word for it because it is it is sultry. I think this is really interesting, and mm. I like this, like it a lot. Yeah, another change. 
we go into track three, which was first time ever everything, first time for everything, which is the track that, you know, this is a real high in my book and I, the track I fell in love with instantly when I heard this album. And as soon as I put it on again, I know I've played it for years, singing it word for word, no trouble at all. I just remembered everything about this song. I remembered how I felt singing it for the first time. It's that kind of thoughtful, this is where the AOR ballad bit yeah. comes in with, with Coney Hatch. Carl Dixon's voice, it, which is peachy oh. anyway, but for a song like this, it brings it to life. Just, and it makes me think of a band, and bands we've done on this pod, like Marseille or Baby Taku, so capable of producing these sort of gems um, that never got recognition. I just think this was, this was a single. This was a mm. single somewhere, a big single somewhere. Canada? But I, I've no idea, but it didn't happen. But I, I've always loved this. Just got a real soft spot. Just makes me happy and sad in equal measure. The vocal harmonies are so like the cars. As you say, the, the, you think what was going on at the time with you know, like the material the cars were producing, why wasn't this a, a massive hit? Mm. Um, no, I, I really like it. It's really, really nice. Really good yeah. song. Yeah. Uh, another high point for me as well, Steve. It's another sultry song. It's it's dripping with harmonies and melodies, and it, I think it's a, I think it's really ambitious for a young band to come out and do this, particularly when they had got that tag of being a heavy metal band, and they weren't a heavy metal yeah. band. They were never a heavy metal band, and and I I love the fact that they've stayed true to that kind of aor inclination but they've beef but but it's aor with a lot of beef around it and that's i think what i really like about this band and this is just top class yeah. top class song to german it to preserve it never watch the video that's all I, that's all i'll say there's a video on youtube and it's them live performing it and it's more 80s than than the 80s it's, it's a horrible <laughs> thing track four is some like it hot and another change this is nice and bouncy nice riff shortest track on the album and kind of deservedly so because i've not actually got an awful lot to say about it it's not one of the it's not one of the highs certainly it's a in fact it's it's a low after after what we've just enjoyed for three tracks yeah the, the, i think it's the chorus that lets it down everything else mm. about it's all right mm. but it, it's almost it's quite lazy yeah this is what i mean by the songwriting i mean that you know it's a nice dirty riff bass line's good but it it didn't really go anywhere you know i thought this to start with, the song had real promise, but it just didn't go anywhere. And it, it looked like it felt that they built an entire song around one riff, where if you compare it to the three tracks that preceded it, as you said, I think lazy is a good word. Um, and Curran was on vocals, um, which are fine, but they're not spectacular. But luckily, our man Dixon is back for um, the closer on side one, which is to feel the feeling again and... You know, it's just in his wheelhouse. Um, it's another wonderfully dramatic, atmospheric number. And it's when you hear a song like this, you just wonder why on earth they let only anyone other than Dixon sing. Um, it's just a rolling, slow, beautiful tune, beautifully sung. Yeah, slice of AOR gold. I think it's a great closer, beautifully atmospheric and, um, yeah, delightfully sung. I, I just think it's an absolutely fantastic song i really do this is one of those songs where you go that's how you do a ballad that is how you do a ballad because just that kind of acoustic guitar his voice is just like honey hmm. and um 
and I, I think it's just beautifully arranged. It's just got that almost sort of heartbreaking desolation to it, hasn't it? Which is just, and it's all about the vocal, this track, all mm. about the vocal. I, I would almost go so far as to say this is my high on the whole mm. album. Yeah. Yeah, I've marked it. I've marked it thus. Yeah, Richard? This is the one that, it, one of the songs just didn't, didn't grab me. I get what you're saying. I think his his vocal performance is impressive, but no, left left me feeling a bit flat, to be honest. Okay. Yeah, that's really interesting. Really super yeah. interesting. I mean, I've got a few weaknesses on this album, and um, if we turn it over, track one, side two is one, which is too far gone. Yeah, it's okay. It's a nice sort of stop, start, heavy riff decently constructed but pretty straight down the line side two is really interesting because the first two tracks are quite similar and then it really picks up the last two that's my thought that's too far gone anyway it's okay i really like too far gone okay i mean i there's a recurring theme here which might kind of add up to i quite like this album but i i, I find this quite got quite a high singability score it's quite a bouncy chorus now i think that that kind of works for me. I, I'll forgive everything else that's going on for that chorus. That's where I got to. Yeah, I do like the riff. I do like the riff. I think it's. A, I think it's a. It's a. It's an eminently catchy riff. Richard, what do you make of it? Yeah, it, good riff, but again, a bit like some like it hot. I found it a bit predictable and pedestrian. Again, Dixon's voice on this is superb. Curran takes over for the next two songs. Um, the first of which is Love Games, which is a kind of kind of no-nonsense ACDC-style riff. And, yeah, Curran's vocals are a bit... The, the difference, they're a bit more grizzled, a bit more frazzled than Dixon's, and it kind of works better, perhaps, on a track like this. Again, it doesn't excite me, as in, and certainly given the two tracks that are to follow, which are, which is why you'd never skip this, um, but it's not, it's not a highlight. Uh, yeah, I'm with you that it's all right. Uh, I think there was some real promise at the start, again, but it... it it didn't really go anywhere. So I think I just need a little bit more interest in sort of in the structure of the song and some other things going on. And the other thing with this, I found that found the solo section a little bit confused. It was all a bit all over the place, I felt. Feels a bit, you know, circa 1987 Def Leppard for me. Maybe not quite as polished, but it's that same kind of um, sentiment to it, I think. This is just really... Ordinary and loads of saccharin, and it's my low of the album. You, you keep the needle on there because you know what's coming, and um, the last two tracks are great. Fallen Angel um, is the first one. Immediately, it's a better riff. It's at a better pace. There's some of the originalities come back in after the, the previous yep. two tracks. Yep. Um, love the rhythm. Love the rhythm that's driven along by Dave Ketchum on drums. Um, just a real step up again. It bowls along, but there are also there's little guitar breaks here and there. This is what Richard was talking about earlier. When they do write their songs and you know think about the arrangement and the creativity, it's some great stuff in this. It's fantastic. Mm. Um, little half solos here and there, and th- 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 all played along to this really intense powerhouse backbeat. Top rock. It's got a radar love start to it, hasn't ah, it? Yeah, the, the, yeah, you yeah. Know, and um, yeah, the the drums and bass really carry it along. And everything else is just, yeah, again, bouncing along over the top. The vocals, the harmonies. As you say, the little guitar licks here and there, fills. There's, it's just got a load more personality to it. Yeah. And we sign off with, and uh, well, 
we go down a Scorpions Avenue with Music of the Night, um, a wonderful, wonderful closure. I love this a bit. Um, again, it's a kind of great riff, um, with a, again, with a thumping backbeat. Wonderful hook line. And Dixon, again, just summoning all his emotion at the mic with just two or three little stellar moments in there. There's a great use of the sort of dramatic pause that before a big vocal line where everything stops. Twin guitars give it, you know, so much scope for variety anyway within these tracks, and this one especially. This and To Feel the Feeling Again were, you know, Coney Hatch at their absolute best. I, I, I think this is a fantastic song. Yeah, this is classic Coney Hatch, isn't it? Mm. You know, all of the songwriting's there, those harmonies are there, the melodies, it kind of lifts and drops. And I think it's just a really good way to end the album. Mm-hmm. Leaves you on a high. Yeah, really atmospheric. It's just this lovely slow shuffle to it, isn't it? It's, uh, yeah, a, and a good finish. Really like the finish. Good album all round. Um, Coney Hatch, out of hand, 1983. Better do some highs and lows. So it was a close run thing for the high between Don't Say Make Me and To Feel the Feeling Again. And ultimately, I think I've gone for... Oh, they got the same score, but if I had to choose, it'd be To Feel the Feeling Again. And my low is Love Games. My low Some Like It Hot... And uh, I would just keep going back to the opener. Don't say make me. I think it's a cracker. Yeah, I'm with you on, on the low, Richard. Some like it hot for me too. And I've given the same scores to Music of the Night and Feel the Feeling again. Push come to shove to feel the feeling again. So there you have it. Part one of three albums on this episode of Enter Sad Men is Coney Hatch's Outer Hand from 1983. And now we fast forward nine years. Um, at, is it nine years? Who knows when any of this stuff was written? Was it written? Who knows any of this? Mark, you can talk, <laughs> us, through, you can talk us through the zaniness, the pure wackiness that is um, spinal taps break like the wind. Opening album sleeve notes. I mean, the first thing to say is, I think, this is a band with a tragic backstory. I mean, how they managed to get through some of the absolutely catastrophic things that happened to them. I mean, the, just the sheer kind of bad luck of having, you know, successive drummers just drop dead on them. Um, I mean, how a band overcomes that, I don't know. So I'm in fair play to them. They do the, uh, they did um, the a rockumentary back in 1984, which seems to be fairly well received. And, and then, yeah, so this is this hardworking English heavy metal band. Break Like the Wind is, is a comeback album. They do, they, they've only done three, albums and two of them being comeback albums um so you know that tells its own story doesn't it um and this is a this is a well i was gonna say it's a four-piece band it is a four-piece band it's got three of the original members with davidson hubbins uh nigel tufnell and derek smalls and of course they've got i mean they managed to find a drummer who's prepared to go and sit on the stool um i mean their previous drummer had literally exploded on stage a previous gig so i mean that was that's not a job you're going to take on lightly another one we lost to a bizarre gardening accident so fair play to rick shrimpton stepping into the breach on the drum kit so yeah this is this is break like the wind do a bit of fact checking so uh formed in london england back well the product of a number of of 
bands dating back to the early 60s. In fact, one of the songs that um, St Hubbins and Tufnell co-wrote together is featured at the back end of this album, All The Way Home. This was released on March 17th, 1992, uh, recorded presumably late 91 into 92. It's all a bit hazy, a bit like a lot of the history of the band released on MCA, runs to a little under 50 minutes and produced by Spinal Tap themselves, T-Bone Burnett, Danny Kochmar, Kochmar, and would you believe Steve Lukather of um, Toto fame, and also Dave Jordan, who had produced uh, much of Alice in Chains, or would go on to produce much of Alice in Chains products. No idea where it was recorded, but it was mixed at Can-Am Studios in Tarzana in Greater Los Angeles. The previous album, as I say, this is Spinal Tap from 1984. And their follow-up, well, that came a long time after this, uh, in 2009, for 17 years, Back from the Dead 2009. This has got a cast of thousands on it. So, as I say, Davison Hubbins on League vocals and guitar, Nigel Tufnell on lead guitar and vocals, and lead vocals on Springtime and Clam Caravan, which, by the way, is a misprint. Uh, it should have been Calm Caravan. Derek Smalls on bass guitar and vocals, Rick Shrimpton on drums and percussion, C.J. Vanston on keyboards, and then, I mean, the guest list on this album, this shows you what high regard Spinal Tap were held in by the royalty of music. Jeff Beck, plays guitar on Break Like the Wind. Cher, would you believe, co-lead vocals on Just Begin Again. Steve Lukather himself plays guitar on Just Begin Again and on Break Like the Wind and plays piano on Clam Caravan. Joe Satriani turns up on Break Like the Wind. Slash turns up on Break Like the Wind. Timothy B. Schmidt on background vocals on Christmas with the Devil and Cash on Delivery. Tommy Funderburk. Uh, background vocals on Christmas with the Devil and Cash on Delivery. And then we've got Waddy Watchtel, slide guitar, and Dweezil Zappa, guitar solo on Diva Fever. Um, and just to um, just add it, we've got Eric Stumpy, Joe Childs on drums on Rainy Day Sun, Nicky Hopkins keyboards on Rainy Day Sun, and Lewis Conte percussion on Clam Caravan. Uh, it charted at number 51 in the UK, 61 in America. It is 14 tracks long, including a hidden track on the CD, uh, track 13. Called, uh, sorry, now leaving on track 13, and it is track 13. You know, if they thought all of their bad luck was behind them, when the album actually came out on CD, they'd managed to print the uh, the centre uh, artwork just off centre, so it spilled onto the CD itself. I mean, this band, everything went wrong for them. So there you go. Uh, that is Spinal Tap, or this is Spinal Tap, <laughs> and um, Break Like the Wind. How did you get on with it? I think it's a it's a it's an excellent piece of work demonstrating their true breadth and um, you know their ability to cover so many genres off. I think it's brilliant. I tell you what, I'm going to leave it to Nigel Tufnell, who said of this, to me, the whole record is like those little dolls that you take apart and there's a little doll in it and you take it apart and there's another little doll. And the mystery, of course, is if you could take the smallest doll apart, what would be inside it? Would there be another big one? That's really break like the wind in a metaphor. Master's a parable posing as an allegory. I mean, I can say no more. (laughs) 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 <laughs> um, well, we should mention, of course, that uh, Rick Shrimpton, um, who played drums on, on this album, I believe is the brother of Mick Shrimpton, who starred yeah. for most of the uh, Spinal Tap rockumentary before he spon- spontaneously combusted uh, on the drum stool. Really great that, uh, that they, got, they got Rick for, back for that. 
let's talk about marking this because Mark, you mentioned, <laughs> you mentioned how are we going to mark this? I really did try to uh, uh, think about the musical compositions and the writing and the playing, but then of course you get back to the humour and they are masters of the lyric and, and the sung or sometimes spoken word, aren't they? So it has got some bonus marks for rolling around the floor laughing impact. Uh, I'd be interested to hear how, how, how you two scored it. But it's it's been good fun. The world is a better place <laughs> for the presence of Spinal Tap. I, I took the view, I started from the point when it came to marking it, I started from the point of view of, am I ever going to play this album for the music? And the answer to that is no. I'm not. This is an album you play because it's funny and you probably play it to somebody else going, listen to this to make you crease up. And it does. And, you know, Steve, your the, the intro that Nigel Tufnell, Christopher Guest, gives to the album. I, I love that philosophy of, of what the band and the album's all about. But I also love um, my, Michael McKean, Davidson Hubbins, who said uh, they've told so they considered the title of the album sort of ironic. Yeah. And, That's and, right. and, part, and part of a new maturity that we find ourselves trapped in. Which is just absolutely fucking genius. Um, supposedly the album was inspired by the supposed death of despised former manager Ian Faith. Um, <laughs> and it was and it was designed, I'm told. To be to be part of a trilogy that was supposed to go on sale and be sold one after the other after twenty minutes. So album one would come out, and then twenty minutes later, album two would go on. And it it was supposedly to follow to follow the pattern of Guns and Roses, Use Your Illusion, one and two. So <laughs> so yeah, I mean it's just it's brilliant. But you cut yeah. If we're going to market for music, which we are going to, I'm afraid, ladies and gentlemen we have to it's not going to fare incredibly well i mean don't get me wrong they can play and they can write songs and they're good songs but you know this is never going to be at the top of this hall of fame i don't think so kind of that that's where i got to i thought okay well let, let's just take it that it's a bit of fun and we'll mark it on that basis so should we give it a spin you've been bad. don't do what i say you don't listen that's the majesty of rock, the fantasy of roll, the ticking of the clock, the wearing of the soul. There she goes, snaps me, there she goes, catch me, there she goes, life on fire. Across the desert on my camel, over hills of sand, 
This is Spinal Tap has given us some of the most quotable movie quotes of all time. Now I think it's fair to say that this album gives us some of some of the most quotable lyrics uh, of all time. None so much uh, as the opening track, which is "Bitch School," um, and this I think I think this is at the front of the album because. I think lyrically it is the, 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 well, that and Majesty of Rock are the cleverest they get. It all goes a bit downhill after that. But it's the most misogynistic song you could ever imagine. And I'm not proud to like it, but I do. But Nigel said, it's a song about dogs and our love for dogs and the disciplining of these little creatures. <laughs> well, dogs walk on our fours and they fetch, obviously. End of discussion. It's not my fault society has changed and we're the victims. <laughs> what a riff, though. It sounds like a Queen number, doesn't it? Yeah, it's just just fantastic. Just a brilliant, brilliant song. I mean, there's so much going on, you know. Dirty riff, good groove, real groovy bridge, a good fun solo. What St. Robbins also said was that um, we had another verse where we mentioned kibble. If we'd left that in, there'd have been no confusion. (laughs) (laughs) This is how clever they are, is that this could be about dogs. We know it isn't. Yeah. But it could be about dogs. Oh, no. There's so much wiggle room in everything they do. Fantastic. <laughs> I, I saw this, pre- this preposterous quote. Despite the fact there was never any affection between the bands, Bitch School drew comparisons to Beatles classics such as Martha, My Dear, and Norwegian Wood. <laughs> yeah. These comparisons were made by David and Derek, however. <laughs> The they need to say there was because there was no affection between the two bands. <laughs> <laughs> Bitch school gives way to the majesty of rock, which has just got some of the best rhyming stuff. Yeah, I mean, just incredible. It's got an absolutely walloping riff running through it. It's got that man of war, man of war kind of approach, which is into glory ride, you know. But it's just got the most ridiculous lyrics. And I I still laugh now. I've heard this uh, hundreds of times, and it still makes me laugh now. It's just brilliant. It's it's epic. It's absolutely epic. It is majestic. I'm interested in what Steve thinks of it, because I say it's very meatloaf as well, isn't it? (laughs) This is overblown Jim Steinman meatloaf musical theatre. Yeah. But it's got a lovely break in the middle, the the builds, and and the lyrics. The lyrics to this day will just put the biggest smile on my face. The fact that you can never actually run out of words that rhyme with rock. So, yes, the darning of the sock. (laughs) Just (laughs) astonishing. It's brilliant. I love it. I absolutely love it. I I think it's a really... Yeah, I get the meatloaf thing, but it's the lyrics, isn't it? Be honest. It's just brilliant. I think I completely lost it. I think you did as well, Richard, with the line... 
the farmer takes a wife, the barber takes a pole. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) But it's the verse before that that does me in. It's the, when we die, do we haunt the sky? Do we lurk in the murk of the seas? What then? Are we born again? Just sit asking questions like these. Just brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. So, (laughs) and I'm afraid, you know, Let's say, let's say out loud that the album goes downhill from here quite quickly. Um, Diva Fever. I mean, again, it's got a big crunching riff on it. It's a proper heavy metal song. But I think, you know, the humour isn't quite so obvious and the song isn't quite so good. So it doesn't work on either level, really. So this is a step down. Yeah, it is in terms of the, the humour and the... Um, well, the, so I actually, I actually like this. It's a kind of proper piece of almost post-punk wobbum. I just, I think it's all right. I do like it as a tune, which is probably missing the point. If we talk about the music for a bit, it's, it's got to start a bit like Shy Boy off, off yes, of yes. Smile. Yeah. Um, but, but not quite as good. I mean, yeah, it charges along, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it has yeah. got an absolutely mad solo. I think, isn't it, uh, it's Dweezil Zapper, isn't it, doing the solo? I think, I think so, yeah. So, um, <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, it's Dweezil Zapper. And it's as mad as his dad. So that's solo. Uh, so do the Fever track three, and we move on to well, I'll tell you what. I'd kind of I, I liked a bit of Cher in the nineteen eighties, but my respect for her just rose again on this because when you hear her sing about the bumblebees and the but and the butterflies, you just can't help but warm to her. This is just begin again, which is a almost a guys and dolls song. I think, and the vocal histrionics on it are just hilarious in that they go from the sort of the lowest possible bass that you can imagine to the most ridiculous falsetto you can ever imagine. And then they've got all of these amazing people playing on the, on, on the song. Just incredible. But are you ever going to play this again other than as a novelty? Probably not. <laughs> no. Read this for some reason. The singer, Sir Cher, was reluctant to perform in the same room as David. So Nigel said it was actually worse than that. He couldn't be within three city blocks. Was the actual wording? <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen the live video? No. The live the live video is hysterical. So it's the band on stage doing their stuff, and they <laughs> and they project this massive still picture of Cher onto a big screen. <laughs> Still picture, and they just randomly and amateurishly move her lips around when it's her time. <laughs> it just looks like a gargoyle. It's just hilarious. And they're earnestly in front of stage doing this, priceless. Um, but as a song, Jesus, yeah. <laughs> it's not good. You almost can't it? judge. You can't judge it. This is the issue, isn't it? But that's what that's what I mean. It's how do you how do you score this album? <laughs> because because you're not really scoring it in the same way that we're scoring everything else. I know. Um, and you can but, tell by the fun we're having going through it <laughs> that we clearly got a real yeah. soft spot for this thing. Yeah, but I, I don't, again, you've got to try try and find some. Um, you know, waypoints and, and comparisons, haven't you? I mean, but I'd still listen to this over I Wouldn't Miss a Thing by Bloody Aerosmith. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, and Silent Night. <laughs> well, <laughs> <not> that, 
you can't mark it as a straight song because it no. is such a piss take. Yeah. yeah. It, it is a, a complete piss take of all of these types of songs that everybody's ever done. Well, the next track is Cash on Delivery, which was the song that they opened the set with at the Albert Hall um, when they played there. And I was lucky enough to be in the audience for that. And it was just a brilliant evening. Have you seen the live footage from that? So the band come on. Uh, playing, but they're lowered on wires from the roof, but none of them get all the way to the floor. <laughs> so they're suspended. <laughs> suspended. <laughs> Derek Smalls is desperately trying to lean down to the microphone. <laughs> and oh, it's just, I mean, you go, go and look at it. Go and watch it on, on YouTube, because it is absolutely genius. It's got the most... Horrible vocal you can imagine. Um, it is, but it's got a bloody brilliant riff on it, and it and it's it, and it's not. A, 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 I mean, it's a bit tongue in cheek, but it's not out and out sort of like ridiculous humour. But yeah, I, I quite like Cash on Delivery, notwithstanding the lyrics. Uh, the <laughs> it reminded me of of the of the kinds of songs written played by Jackal that we, we, yes. we did way earlier yes. in the thing, you know, and I thought, well, actually, this this would this would have. This could fit on that Jackal album, <laughs> both in terms of the style of the song and its subject matter. Yeah, I thought yes. Ted, New- Ted Nugent meets REO Speedway, and that's where I was with this. But... <laughs> that's, that's the marriage in hell, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's quite clever. With your long blonde hair and your wild young hips, you look like a million, including tips. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's Cash on Delivery. And then the brilliantly titled... The Sun Never Sweats, which I just think is genius. And I quite like this song. Again, I'm not sure I'd ever choose to play it again other than to play it to somebody else to go, look how funny this is. The Sun Never Sweats, it's got a brilliant uh, bridge in it, and it's also got... It's it's almost like a barracuda riff running through it, which makes it quite attractive hourly. Um, and the vocal's all right. So, yeah, I quite like The Sun Never Sweats. Man of War meets Heart. That's why I had them. Yeah. Fair play to them. They do paint brilliant pictures with their song. The, the title's a bastardization of old saying that the sun never sets on the British Empire. Derek, who wrote the title track, says he misheard it. <laughs> <laughs> the sun never sweats. The opening lyric to this is, Bolder than the pirates who used to rule the sea. Braver than the natives who never heard never of heard tea. Of tea. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they never knew what hit them, said the Spaniards later on. Empire, it was here, and now it's gone. I love that line, we may be gods or just big marionettes. <laughs> <laughs> i tell you what, I'm a massive Edward Lear. This may sound really highfalutin, but I'm a massive Edward Lear fan. Um, and this is, this is quality nonsense poetry, a lot of this stuff. You know, that may yeah. sound over the top. It really is. It's really, it's really well done, a lot of it. Utterly mad. So the album marches on, and it's Rainy Day Sun <laughs> is the next song, which has got very... I mean, I, I'm assuming that there is a deliberate uh, musical motif token to the kinks uh, on Lazy Sunday Afternoon. Um, yeah. Uh, because that's kind of how it starts. And, uh, yeah, this is a, this is something that clearly is intended to hark back to the early days of the of well either the early days of spinal tap or to the uh the lovely lads that nigel was in and it was the creatures wasn't it the davidson hubbins 
was a part of before he, they founded uh, Spinal Tap. But this is this is definitely rooted in the 1960s, and it's, it's just... If you like the kinks, you'll get what this is all about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I wasn't sure if they were just attempting to try and shoehorn as many rip-offs into yeah. one song. Because, you know, yeah, you, you, know say, you, you got Summertime at the start, you know, HQ Park, I'm the Walrus... Ruby Tuesday, I can hear it's, in there. Yeah, um, and and I just do wonder if they they'd worked out, you know, what what else they, just how much could they could they cram into into one song? Rainy Day Sun uh, goes to the title track, which is Break Like the Wind, which is actually a really good song. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you know, in its own right, forget forget the lyrics um, and and the obvious sort of farting play on words. But it's it's a bit like Kashmir. It's a journey across the yeah. desert to me, isn't it? Um, which is to come. There's a problem which one is to come, come. of those, isn't there? Yes, yeah. there is a problem one to come. Misspelt or otherwise. Yes. But the one thing they haven't put on their tick list up to now was um, some classical music, a classical music cover. So, you know, they tick that box on this one as well, don't they, by inserting some random piece of Rodrigo, don't they? Spanish yep. guitar. Yes, which is... Uh... It's just such an absurdity within it but then the song's absurd isn't it but i have to i agree with you that it powers into some real beef it, yeah, it's a ridiculous mm-hmm. song but it's some yeah. really beefy stuff in there and i love that rodrigo sam sample as well i just think it just mm. works doesn't it mm. on the on the song well um, yeah but it, it's just so random but how often have we said that about so many other yeah, exactly. epic songs on this podcast, you know? Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's a bit of a swipe at, at, at those kinds of songs, isn't it? And I mean, yeah. it, I love the epicness at the end. I mean, it just gets more and more outrageous, doesn't it? And then there's an yeah. absolutely big mental finish as well. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so Break Like the Wind, the title track. And I think deserving of being the title track as well. I think it's it's got the calibre. Um, stinking up the great outdoors. Well, this was their, as according to them, this was their protest song about playing outdoor festivals. This is just a, a fairly straightforward novelty rock and roll song. Nothing much to say about it. The lyrics are good fun. I can take or leave the music if I'm being absolutely honest. It's more straightforward, this, isn't it? And I mean, it, it's got mildly amusing lyrics, but not one that is particularly funny. Um, I'm a fairly standard boogie woogie rock, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, which is different in itself, in as much as they haven't done that yet, really, up to this point. So that in itself is. Um, I like those boogie woogie lines that run through it. They're quite good. But uh, yeah, it's it's a pretty ordinary song, isn't it? And as you made the point, yeah, when the joke wears off, what's next? And, and what's next is just a melange of different music that's kind of take it or leave it in a lot of cases, isn't it? And I can leave the next one, which is Springtime. Mm-hmm. This is my low point of the album. So there's a bit David Lee Roth kind of shuffle going on in it. Um, I don't like the vocal very much. It's a bit growly and shouty. And I, I, I forget it's all even on the album most of the time. Mm. Uh, I, love it. I love the lyrics. I love the way it starts. Springtime is on my mind. Flower blooming all the time. Smell the roses, smell the grass. Old man, winter can kiss my ass. It loves spring. They love spring. <laughs> And then about two minutes later, springtime, enough's enough. Tired of flowers and all that stuff. Want some drizzle, want some sleet, want some wellies on my feet. I just think that's brilliant. This complete sort of spring meltdown that's occurred over three minutes. I think it's priceless. And also, I love the end bit. I love the kind of do they or don't they fade it out. 
and then they don't quite know <laughs> yes. what to do or where to go. And that finish is just sensational. And we, then we come to, well, is it Calm Caravan or is it, as it's printed, Clam Caravan, which is their homage to Zeppelin and uh, Kashmir, as we've, uh, Steve, you alluded to. I can't help but think that when Nigel Tufnell wrote this, he had Lick My Love Pump in his head, written with, with this sort of uh, classical piece of music with all of these sort of references and, ins- and inspiration drawn from, you know, sort of the shifting sands of the Moroccan desert and all the rest of it. But actually, it's, it's, it is it's Lick My Love Pump. I love the use of what sounds like a sitar, which, of course, is clever. Yes. It's absolutely fuck all to do with the Northern African desert. Um, and clever the way he manages to play it completely out of tune. Brilliant. <laughs> The bit that I think is really clever is the bit that nobody would ever notice unless they read the lyric sheet, which is that when he talks about, at the end, about, and I'm back in old England again, yeah, they've on the lyrics spelt it O-L-D-E for old, England, E-N-G-L-A-N-D-E, and then again, <laughs> A-G-I-N-E. <laughs> and it's just that, it's those little bits of attention to yeah, detail yeah, where you yeah, just yeah. go, that is absolute fucking genius. Yeah. Absolute genius. So we have talked about this on a previous uh, episode. Christmas with the Devil, wow, it's a, it's Spinal Tap's blatant attempt to get into the Christmas charts with some suitably kind of devil-related or hell-related lyrics. It's fine. It makes me laugh. It does the job it sets out to do. You'd probably play Wham's Last Christmas ahead of it. Track 13, the penultimate track, uh, is the hidden track on the album, uh, now leaving on track 13. And it's about euthanasia, apparently. And it's got possibly the best <laughs> lyric I have ever heard on any album ever at all, which is, uh, shall he lie there forever with a tube up his nose and his pee-pee and poo-poo slipping out through a hose? <laughs> uh, uh, you've, you've ignored the line before it. The nurse hovered near and so did the reaper. But which had the number to his private beeper? <laughs> uh, in fact, in fact, let's just because it's a really short. It's really just short, do it, really. just do it, man. It, it's brilliant. In a hospital bed on the outskirts of town lay an old grey man in a soiled white gown. His hair was all wispy. His eyes were a blank. His breath came in spurts from an oxygen tank. The nurse <laughs> hovered near, and so did the reaper. But which had the number to his private beeper? Shall he lie there forever with a tube up his nose and his pee-pee and poo-poo slipping out through a hose? Or shall he be released to float towards the light like a wee baby doveling or a really good guy? Really <laughs> let him go, let him go. It's too late for healing. Put an end to the pain that we know he is feeling. His life is his burden. His death is his right. Let's send him off gently into that good night. Good night. <laughs> Brilliant. The final track is obviously a very old track, recorded in nineteen, well, written in nineteen sixty-one, recorded apparently in nineteen sixty-seven. Uh, makes a you know a big uh, appearance on the documentary from nineteen eighty-four. This is Spinal Tap. This is called All the Way Home. Iconic song by Spinal Tap. And given that it didn't appear on Smell the Glove, it would have to appear on um, on this one. So yeah. It's it's kind of Lonnie Donegan shuffle, isn't it? 
Yeah, well, I mean, it, it appears here because it, um, Nigel found the original demo tape in a box in his loft. The, the, the David said, yeah, one box he thought contained women's underclothes, which he used to collect <laughs> as souvenirs. He opened it up, expecting the memories to come flooding out, and he saw the tape. It's fine. Yeah. yeah. A fitting ending. <laughs> yeah. Highs and lows, boy, Steve. Look, that's just genuinely tough. Um, genuinely, genuinely tough. I'll say the majesty of rock is a high because it, it's because it's, it's going to be right up there anyway. Lows, not easy. Um, probably, yeah, probably all the way home. Richard, because it's not really a song, and if if we're marking it, I mean, just the lyrics are funny, aren't they? But I mean, now leaving on track thirteen, is it really a song? So that's down there all the way home. Yeah, I think if if I'm marking a song. And, yeah, Majesty of Rock would be my high as well. It's an absolute colossal piece of music. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm with you on the high. Majesty of Rock, Springtime's my low, but it, it's not for the lyrics. The lyrics are, are great. It's, it's, just the, it's just the tune. I can't get on with the tune. Um, so there you go. That is Spinal Tap, Break Like the Wind, 1992. Uh, two down, one to go, and that one is well. Is it going to be divisive? In fact, it's worth saying that uh, a bit like the Black Album, uh, the next album that we're going to talk about is one that essentially was part of the birth of this podcast, uh, which was an argument we had about three years ago about which was better, Load or the Black Album. I think we're going to answer that in the next 30 minutes because, uh, Richard, uh, you chose it, 1996, so introduce it. Opening album sleeve notes. People must know about this album. Let, let's do the the facts first, and then, we'll talk, then we can all talk a little bit about the album itself. So... It, it was uh, released on June the 4th, 1996. It's Metallica's sixth studio album. Uh, and uh, it came out about five years or so after the Black Album, which, of course, sent them into the stratosphere. It took them an absolute age to record. One piece of, of information I've got was that it was around you know May 95 to February 96, so about nine months. Other stories put it at around a year. Um, I mean, by comparison, the Black Album took them seven months to record, <laughs> and Kill 'Em All, their debut, took them seventeen days. So, uh, well, let's let's work on that as a as a you know result of a studio return on investment, shall we? It was released on Electra. Producers, of course, they got Bob Rock in again, given the magic that he'd done on the Black Album to work with Hetfield and Ulrich in producing it. They booked out the plant studios in California, and then it would be followed well, not too long after by, of course, Reload. Personnel, well, you know them well. It's Hetfield, Hammett, Newstead and Ulrich on guitar, guitar, bass and drums. I'm sure you know that already. It did brilliantly in the charts, not surprisingly, following in the wake of the Black Album, uh, went number one on both sides of the Atlantic, stayed in the charts for a long, long time. Went platinum in the, in the UK, at least five times platinum in the US. So Hetfield wrote the lyrics and um, the others, I mean, sort of Ulrich and, and, and Hammett, uh, joined in in some of the music for some of the tracks. I won't go through the detail because there are 14 tracks and we'll be here all night. They are as follows. Ain't My Bitch, 2x4, House That Jack Built and Until It Sleeps on side one. Came out as a double vinyl. 
King Nothing, Hero of the Day, Bleeding Me on side two. The Cure, pure t- Poor Twisted Me, Wasting My Hate and Mama Said on side three. And then the album finishes side four with Thorn Within, Ronnie and the Outlaw Torn. So I have professed for years that this is my favourite Metallica album. It will be really, really interesting um, when we when it comes to score this and we really do do this forensically with all the context we've already got from Kill Em All and Ride the Lightning and the Black album on this pod. There are still some tracks on this I just think are absolutely immense. There are some, as we've said on on the Black album as well, that let this album down, in the case of this album, let it down massively. And there are some songs in the middle. It's been good to go back to it with this sort of critical mindset. I've enjoyed some bits of it. It's been interesting, actually. Hmm. It's been really interesting listening to this with a really properly critical ear. <laughs> and it's going to be really fascinating to see what how it survives this conversation. Steve? I'm already fascinated because the caveats in your voice, the tone of your voice, which we never, ever had. We never, ever had. I, I know where I stand with this album and kind of got hunched with Mark. I know you absolutely... Just listening to your intro there, it's really, really interesting. Mm. Um, I've never professed this is my favourite Metallica album, not by a long shot. Um, I think it's a very good album, generally, probably because of its breadth, you know, which is carrying on from, from the exploratory aspect of the Black Album, I guess. I just wanted another one of those, which is the simple soul in me. And Metallica always sort of did evolve, so you knew they'd evolve. I'll say it as I'll say it as I see it. There are parts of this that bore me, and I think I was swept away with it back in the day, while accepting then that there were one or two moments that didn't kind of float my boat. Listening to it again now, I'm less tolerant of a few more tracks as well. Mm. It just didn't go off in the direction that I wanted it to. I guess there's a kind of, there's an almost sameness about it as it goes on in terms of tempo and tone. We'll go through it and it'll be fascinating to see if you agree with what I'm saying. But I mean, if I try to compare it with their back catalogue, you know, albums of the calibre, as you said, of Lightning and Puppets and, and the Black Album, kill them all. Um, I can pick a lot more holes in this. And, and there are many Metallica fans who I never kind of give a shit really what other Metallica, apart from you two, um, think about it. But I know a lot of them thought they saw this as the first big sellout of the band, didn't they? My job is to mark this album for what it is, and it's still, it's still a very good piece of work. It, as you said, it's too long, it's far too long, and with so many tracks on it, you know, if one or two don't hit the mark, the album score will come down, and I've kind yeah. of accepted that, and that's fine. It is not as good as I remember it, and I still love it. And I, like you, there are bits on it, early on in the album, there are bits on it within the first sort of half dozen tracks that are as good as anything Metallica did, mm. and I just think they fade away a lot quicker than I remember, which is interesting. <laughs> I think hats off to them, for me, uh, in terms of the the variety of some of the songs um, on on this. But as you say, I think with the caveat in my voice, you know, it, with so many tracks, it makes it quite an easy target. Is it a good album? Yes, it is. Musically, I don't think you can doubt mm-hmm. it's a very good album. And yes, there are some absolutely colossal tracks on it. And because it is a very good album musically, I will probably end up scoring it quite well. But I don't care what score it gets, it is not. It might end up scoring better, for example, than the Black Album on a, on the basis of the music alone. Uh, 
probably won't. I, I haven't looked, so I, it's going to be really interesting. But it's not as good. It's the Black Album. I think I've worked. I've worked out this week. I prefer the Black Album. I don't think this album now would make my top five Metallica albums. Um, whereas I would have put it, you know, at or near the top. Um, and th- and and you know, we marked it, didn't we, three years ago? It'll be really interesting to see whether those how those marks stand up because we've listened to it more forensically. Uh, now we've listened to it several times and listening for different things. And as you say, there's all that context. Uh, two things, I think, three things maybe that jumped out for me. One, for me, this is Metallica's physical graffiti. The front of this album is brilliant and the back of it is really poor, I think, with one or mm. two exceptions. Mm. Um, and, and I think that's true of physical graffiti. The second thing that I would say is, Finally, the penny dropped, and I suddenly realised what it was that I, I was really struggling with. This album has no attack. No attack at all. Uh, it is absolutely level. There's no... You, know, you listen to Kill Em All, Lightning, Puppets, even Justice, which overproduced, overblown, overdriven, all of the overs... I would. St- I still think Justice is a classic Metallica album. There are all sorts of things wrong with it, but I would still play it ahead of this because, for me, the truth is, I don't think this is a Metallica album anymore. And it's <laughs> taken this week. I think it's a great hard rock album. I think it's a great hard rock album. There are tracks on it that I absolutely love. House that Jack built, absolutely colossal. I've got stuff like Mama Said, which I think is brilliant. That I, I don't have a problem with it as a piece, as a suite of music. Is it a Metallica album? That's what I kept asking myself. <laughs> ultimately, I decided I don't think it is. The other thing is, I think they waited too long to record a new album. If they'd released an album after three years, two and a half, three years, I think, I think it would have been more. It would have been more of an evolution. This, this to me, feels a long way away from the Black Album. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, let's give it a listen.
Uh, and the album starts with Ain't My Bitch. And, well, it's not a bad start, is it? I mean, it, uh, it's a good punch-in-the-gut kind of uh, start for a Metallica album. I mean, it bodes well. Low thundering riffs and tempo changes. Big lift to the chorus. And Jason Eustace bass carrying this whole song along on its back. Other good points, uh, Hetfield's voice, I think, is in fine fettle on this album. Whether he's spitting, he's shouting, he's whispering, and it's a really good start from him. Nothing like Enter Sandman, but it's a, it's a good swaggering start. Yeah, well, I mean, Enter Sandman was your millstone almost, wasn't it? Because you... you, you... You'll never, you'll never trump that as, a, as an opening track. I think this is absolutely brilliant. You've got to make a statement, and kind of ironically, that the, the five-year wait has given people a time perhaps to forget how monstrous Enter Sandman was as an opener. And I like Ain't My Bitch a lot, and I think it's, um, I think it's a really, really different curtain raiser, powered along by that crunching riff. And I immediately sense that this album might feel a little bit different. But great, and I'm looking forward to you know begging for mercy, and you know you're going to, because fuck me, it's 80 minutes long. They're gonna, they're not gonna let up with the ferocity on the strength of this, and 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 I feel I'm gonna be cheerier after this assault. If if this is a template of what's to come, mm. I think it's a brilliant opener. All right, well let's move on to track two, which is two by four. One thing I do love about this whole album is it's where Metallica found their groove, and the, what a fucking groove on this song uh it's it's groovy but so heavy and the way the bass and the guitar play together um i mean it really is like being belted around the head with a piece of two by four again such a swagger and a step up on the opener for me uh i love two by four i just i love the sort of the bounce of the rhythm in this and it's funkier mm. it's groovier they're almost going down a funk metal alley here of course you know, James Hetfield can only ever sound like James Hetfield, not in the least bit funky. Now, I'm with you, Richard. I think this is brilliant. I love those those punctuated verses are just, there's so much venom in there mm. um, and all those classy little drops and breaks and bridges. But it's the bounce. It is the bounce of this, that's that, that sustaining that level of malevolence while keeping it almost funky. I know. It's, that's yeah, quite a thing. It is. That's right, isn't it? And, and the... This grooviness continues into track three, uh, which is the house that Jack built. These ringing, heavy chords give way to James Hetfield, incredibly close to the mic, again turned up, this really clean, close vocal, almost as if he's whispering right into your ear, um, and then breaks into this amazing slow groove. It's a really sort of choppy, blunt verse riff. And then into, I mean, for me, the most glorious groove for the chorus, this sort of walking riff. The album now is up on a level, and uh, still going back to this song, I was just... Oh, I loved it again. Loved it all over again. There's a few key and tempo changes on here that will have Richard ejaculating, but do less for me. And there's some poppiness in some of that little lyrical phrasing. I'm not bothered about some of the guitar distortion. Just little things that all together... I don't put the riffs to die for. I'll just use that as my default and shut up. This is a song about James Hetfield's relationship with Jack Daniels. 
and the impact it had on his life. It's, it's about alcoholism and addiction. Um, and it, I absolutely love this song. This is my high point. So, you know, spoiler alert, it always has been. I think it's an absolutely monumental song. Um, immense riff. I think the vocal performance is almost flawless and everything works. The only thing I would say about it, the the one thing that stops it being a 10 for me is, and, and it's a criticism I have of many of the songs on the album, it takes them a fucking age to get going with it. Yeah, you know, everything. <laughs> I mean, the Outlaw Torn, which I love when it gets going, and there's so many of them, you just think, oh, come on, boys, just can we just get with it now? Because I, I have to wait so long for that, and on this track, I have to wait a long time for that absolutely brilliant chorus. But I had to wait. You have to wait a long time for it, and it drives me nuts. All right, let's move on to, uh, to track four, which is Until It Sleeps. So this was the first single off of uh, this album, and a big, big surprise for everybody because it was sort of poppy, it was swaying. Yes, it, there's some heaviness, but lots of interchange between quieter and, and heavier Hetfield's in fine form on vocals. And, yeah, I mean, Steve, you were mentioning about my hmm, uh, tone of voice earlier. I used to hold this track in a sort of high regard as you know, things like Unforgiven, uh, and I don't anymore. Um, I think, still think it's a good song. <laughs> I'm criticising a song that's got a decent score, but I, I don't know. I, I was what's, a bit what's altered over, what's altered over time, then, Richard? Yeah, tell us what's, what's altered over time. I don't I still know. love it. I don't know because it did divide opinions, didn't it? At the time, when we saw this, you know, almost yeah. pop metal track coming out, I, I, and I've you know, had 25 years to work up a lather like so many other Metallica fans about this, and, and I just can't. I, I still think it's mm. awesome, absolutely awesome. I guess at the time, I, I know what you're saying, at the time it was the first new Metallica song we'd heard for years. We were desperate, weren't we, to be honest. We, we, yeah. we wouldn't have been disappointed. Yeah. You know, they just come on stage and fart if they did it loud and heavily. Would have loved it. Um, so, but, it, yeah, it is different in, in so many ways, but, you know, it's not Metallica who knew and loved them, but you know what? Shit happens. Doubters needed to get over themselves. I, I, I loved it then. And um, yeah, I've still got a great sense of warmth for it now as a pop metal track. I can't, hear, can't believe I'm saying yeah. pop metal about Metallica. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure it is pop. I think this is the most Metallica song on the album. Oh, possibly Actually. so. Okay. You know, I really do. Um, okay. And I still, I still love it. Um, and I just remember thinking, this is going to be an absolutely fucking brilliant album if this yeah. is indicative of mm. what's on it. Yeah. And you know what? It is a great album. Um, mm. you know, for all of my criticism of it, it's still a great album. Mm. It's just not a Metallica album. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not about them selling out either. I'm not no. I, like you, Steve. Don't give a shit. You know, yeah. th they've got the right to do what they want to do musically, and I will eat, and I will make my choices accordingly. And I choose not to listen to any Metallica output beyond this album um, because I think it's all shit. But yeah, th that's their right, their prerogative. They're, they're yeah. the band. They're the creative force. Fine, get on with it. Make your money. I, I don't begrudge you that at all. I, so this isn't about them selling out on this. This is this is just about. It doesn't sound like them. Okay, so Until It Sleeps gives way to track five, which is King Nothing. Uh, starts with almost a 
waspy, buzzy guitar and an almost funky bass riff, I guess. And uh, then it, I mean, it leads into a real stomper of a riff. A slight step down, more traditional, but yeah, it's, this is this is a it's a decent song. It's a decent song, King. Interesting that you think it's a step down because Enter Sandman wasn't isn't a step down, is it? And yet this is almost exactly the same structure. <laughs> mm. um, so much so that at the end of the song, you can hear the words uh, "Off to Never Neverland." This part. <laughs> So it's really interesting that that we think it's a substandard or sub, <laughs> it's a step down from anything else, and yet structurally it is almost exactly the same as Enter mm. Sandman. It is, isn't it? The first note, the first note I wrote, I wrote was um, they've done this sort of thing before, haven't they? Question mark, and I couldn't nail it. And you've just said it. It's exactly what it is, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, probably why I love it so much. It's just a lazy, <laughs> heavy song, isn't it? Just a depressingly yeah. heavy, lazy song. I, I love this song. Uh, and I love the next one as well. Yes, well, the next one. Hero of the Day. Um, I mean, this this really did outrage fans, didn't it, at the time? I still think this is amongst the best songs they've ever written. It's uh, this lovely light start, lovely layers. Uh, they managed to restrain Lars on the drumming. Yeah, the giggles you can hear is Mark looking at Steve's face as I'm uh, <laughs> describing my love for this song. The emotion from James Hetfield. Um, the way this song builds is just fantastic. And then it properly, properly kicks off. It's wonderful. Still love, still love Hero of the Day. It's about Lemmy, isn't it? I thought it's a, yeah, it's a, it's yeah, a tribute the... to Lemmy. And I love the way the riff kicks off in it in the middle of it but Steve tell us why you just don't get it no I just don't I just don't I, I, I don't no, don't mind any right turns I mean it's just wrong turns I don't like that's all I, mean, <laughs> I, I, I simply don't they did this kind of power banner thing from time to time and generally did it well and this just this is just so okay on so many levels I do like it when it picks up a bit I just don't get anything from this at all <laughs> I, I can I can almost not articulate how cold I feel listening to this. Uh, amazing, um, amazing, and it's always I'm been that way, hasn't it? And it's always been that way. that way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I don't, I don't know what I'm listening to. Um, well, I do, and I wish I wasn't. Okay, well, let's uh, move on to the closer of the first half of the album on side two. If you've got this on vinyl, and that is "Bleeding Me." Another quiet start, a very interesting guitar sound, and another song that just builds and builds and builds. On this album, they really have let these songs breathe. And I think that's one of the reasons I, I still like it so much, uh, the spaces that are, that, are, that are in here. And I, I think this is a really fitting climax to the first half of the album. I've gone back to this, still absolutely loved it. Again, I love it. You know, it's, it's quiet, then it's heavy. It's got a big chorus, and then it's got this wonderful Judas Priest-like final riff that is just so raw and heavy. Um, it puts still puts a massive smile on my face. Yeah, everything's just steady, isn't it, and measured. No mm. hysterics, no big riffs. Just the, and as you say, just the evolution of a song. And this is a great. This is a re- really great example of that style. And and uh, and we hear other examples of this style later on because there's so many tracks to go at, and they just don't work in the same way. This is a really well-balanced power ballad on a different level to the song before. 
I hasten to add. And when it goes into that chug, I mean, that is off the scale, so slow that it almost stops. You listen to a song like this, absolutely no one does it better than Metallica when they're on fire. Jesus, there's some emotional tank emptying going on here. I think this is an awesome track. I just love the depth and the power and the heaviness. This is a spinal tap sandwich. (laughs) What's in here? Nothing. Um, (laughs) It's eight minutes and 17 seconds long. It has the best riff on this album by a country mile, but it is only 19 seconds long. (laughs) and then they stop it and it really fucks me off on weapons grade fucked offness (laughs) Um, uh, and and do you know why it fucks me off because it's yet another song that i have invested six minutes and 30 seconds of my life to get to the one bit that is absolutely brilliant (laughs) and then they fucking stop it (laughs) and it drives me nuts it's still got a high score but it really pisses me off you just you just like it hard and fast my friend don't you that's i do i do Right, let's move on to the second half of the album then. And uh, <laughs> side three uh, opens with Cure, much more traditional start after the slow, quiet starts of the last couple of tracks. Very catchy riff and the sort of double, even triple layered vocals, which are, again, quite disturbing. I quite like. There's a thundering bass beneath it all. Yeah, I, I I still like the cue. I still like this song. This was the instant impact. This was the first, this was the track when I reached this first time I played this through. I thought, oh my god! And just after the awesome bleeding me, um, big boost to follow. I just thought this was my favourite track. Off the scale, good. I, the riff, the, the sort of those funky lyrics. That that. But when that heavy pre-chorus kicked in, ah me. I mean that just oh. But it does try, you know, Michael Getty, he's kind of alluded to it already, it does kind of lose its way a bit, reminiscent to that extent of My Friend of Misery, which started out as one of the greatest ever Metalli tracks and also lost its way, unfortunately. But the finish, a, a mention for the I Do Believes at the end of this, <laughs> when he gets into his rage, that barrage is top, top class. And I still love this track to this day. Well, we must move it on, gentlemen, to uh, track nine, uh, which is Poor Twisted Me. (laughs) Yeah, distorted vocals, um, some choppy guitars, almost an Aerosmith-type riff. Lars is less restrained. Obviously, Bob Rock wasn't holding on to his arms uh, much on uh, on this track. Uh, It's got a decent shuffle to it, interesting rhythm. Uh, Picks up in the middle a little bit, but this is getting... The lowest score so far for me. Uh, your use of the word shuffle is very interesting because my, 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 the, the note I wrote was this kicks off like Metallica doing a ZZ Top tribute. There's almost a sort of gruffness and a sort of southernness about it, just with tons of miserable weight aboard it. And yeah, you, you're right. This is the slow descent now from, from, from here on, with the odd exception, but yeah. Yeah, only redeemed by two songs now between now and... The record ending. I've never got on with 
Paul twisted me. Don't like, didn't like it then. Don't like it now. Mm-hmm. All right, let's skip on then. Uh, wasting my hate. Um, so you've almost got a cleaner fifty style guitar that starts this, uh, but not for long because then it really does explode. Verse could be better, but I think the riff in the chorus is absolutely killer. Um, and uh, Hetfield spitting his way through another one. I've enjoyed going back to this one. Yeah, and I agree with you on that. It sounded like holier than thou a little bit, certainly in terms of the pace of mm. it. And I, just, and I just stuck on holier than thou just to remind myself of the kind of pace of that. The instant comparison between the two just reminded me, reinforced my view of the two albums because Load in general just lacks that crisp ferocity of the Black Album, I think. There's something muted in all this, dull and I don't know what it is, but nice to have some pace injected back into proceedings. And this is about the time I remember that once upon a time, Metallica had been a thrash band. Okay, well, let's move on to track 11. Track called Mama Said. The softest, lightest song on this album, probably in terms of their own written songs that they've ever done. Strumming acoustics... Um, it's almost country, isn't it? Uh, and I think you can see the Leonard Skinner influence uh, in, in this song. Uh, I remember when Mark and I first listened to this in the latter stages of it, we, we both looked at each other and went, ooh, tambourine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think the bridge is to die for. I love the chorus, the low harmony vocals. I think it's one of Hetfield's most accomplished vocal performances. And uh, I still think it's a beautiful song. Whoever records it. No, I completely agree with that. Uh, I think it's a, an absolute masterpiece. It's, it's fascinating. I, I don't rate this track anywhere near as highly as you two, because I know you both adore it. And I quite like it. It's the kind of, it, it's the ballad that stays a ballad, which they never did. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. You know, the, 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 yeah. the, the pickup never comes where it did on Welcome Home or, or Nothing Else Matters, which is, which is fascinating in itself. No problem with that at all. I read a forum, I read a really interesting forum, espousing any number of views on, on this and other songs, but this song mainly. Mostly favourable, I have to say. Some questionable. But the final comment, <clears throat> and it was kind of left unanswered, was what would Cliff say? That's really interesting, interesting, isn't it? Yeah. 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 We now come to uh, Mark's favourite two tracks of the album. And uh, the first of them is The Thorn Within, track 12. I mean, it starts off well, ringing chords, thumping drums. The, the riff is just not memorable at all. It's just remorselessly numbing, isn't it? I mean, and, a, mm. and the problem is where it is, where it lies on the album. I know it's, you know, you don't have to have it as track 12. You don't, you know, this pre-CD, that wouldn't have happened, would it, on vinyl? But I'm just, I've just almost been beaten into submission now or depression, but it's just got to that point where it's just so heavy, so remorseless. I quite like the riff, I have to say. <laughs> I do quite like the riff. In fact, we're just listening to it now, and, and, and in my head, I'm going, "Oh yeah, there, yeah, that's all right." Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is an album I've been listening to for a week. You know what I mean? It's um, <laughs> but there's a lot of that on this album. So there you go. That's that's that album. That is this album. Well, hold on to your hats, ladies and gentlemen, because <laughs> we now move on to track thirteen, which uh, is a track called Ronnie. I mean, it starts again with an almost ZZ Top kind of guitar groove, doesn't it? And there's a vibra slap in there uh, into an Aerosmith-style verse. But it's fairly fairly ploddy. And we always previously felt this was the weak link on the album. So I went back and I really did try. And I failed again. 
(laughs) (laughs) How did you two get on with this? Uh, It's five minutes 17 of utter shit. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not quite of that view. Um, It's pretty bog standard fare by Metallica standards, isn't it? And I still don't quite get why he goes through that sort of Johnny Cash vocal shit at the end. I quite like some of the guitar lines running through it, but as a song, as a whole, I'm not quite with Mark, but it's not great. Given it was preceded by The Thorn Within and Ronnie, to this day, this is still the only album I can think of where I get to the end of the album, put it on the last track. (laughs) Because the Outlaw Torn track 14 is still, for me, 10 minutes of absolute brilliance the fade in the disturbing guitars the momentous riff uh, the breakdown into the verse the bass riff through it is just wonderful uh Lars manages to control himself the dual vocals the power chords the huge chorus the subject matter I mean this is this is Metallica's bad company the builds the drops and it just it just keeps going, keeps going. Is, is that it? No, there's another solo. Is, is it finished? No, there's now an amazing vocal passage. Is it finished? No. Then it just ends with the most colossal, colossal riff. Finishing on a high is now my track of the album. I think this is absolutely colossal. Gosh. I think a lot of the start of this is like wading through treacle if I'm honest. I really do. The original working version of this was over 11 minutes long, and I believe that's on the back of one of the singles from Reload. Christ, I struggle with that. It's, it's hard enough at best part of 10. I, I do love the end. There's the, the energy and the ferocity when it kicks in, it takes about six minutes, if I'm honest, but it's almost too late to save this for me, But <laughs> which is really odd, isn't it? I think where I got to with this track, quite quite quickly, sort of back in... 96 is all of that treacle is worth it for the last two thirds of the song. Yeah, yeah. I think it is too long at 10 minutes. I think you could have done this, shaved three minutes off this, and it would have been fine. But uh, it, it is well worth the wait. And it again, it is one of three highlights for me on the album. Mm-hmm. And you, yeah, you're absolutely right, Rich. That, that outro is just gobsmackingly good. Okay, so one of your highs. Let's have your absolute high and your low, gentlemen. It's quite easy, really. Um, Ronnie is is without any doubt and by a very, 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 very long distance, the low. And uh, my high, it could be, Mama said, it could be the outlaw tone, but it, it always was, and I think it probably always will be, the house that Jack built. I mean, Ronnie, just for me, rather than by Country Mile, certainly. Favourites, I've got several that score the same. I, I I still remember it the day I heard it first and as a prelude to what was to come. Still love it until it sleeps. Yeah, so as I've just said, The Outlaw Torn is now my high on this album. And, yeah, I'm with both of you in terms of Ronnie as the low. Right, it's going to be fascinating, absolutely fascinating how we score this, uh, which we are going to do with our scores also for the other two albums we've listened to in this podcast. Reviews complete. Initialising rating process. Okay, so that was 
entertaining, good stuff. Three good albums for uh, episode 63 of the pod this time round. Coney Hatch's Outer Hands, Spinal Tap's Break Like the Wind and Metallica's Load. We've done the reviews, we've done the scores. Let's find out what the numbers are. I kicked off with, um, yeah, Coney Hatch, Outer Hand from 1983. And, well, quite a mixed bag, quite a variety of scores um, from Richard with 7.22 up to Mark with 8.13 and me in the middle with the best part of 7.9 for an overall score of 7.75 uh there or thereabouts mark spinal tap how they get on yeah well, it's all right actually it probably did better than i thought it was going to do and um, whether that was uh down to the fact that i obviously liked it a little bit more than you two uh probably it would have been lower had i not but uh steve you gave it the thick end of seven six point nine six if we're being Absolutely accurate. Um, Richard, you didn't like it quite as much. 6.7, and I gave it a 7.35 for an overall average album score of 6.83571. And the interesting, the really interesting album of the uh, episode, I suppose, was Loads. Um, so, Richard, uh, how did that get on? It's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, well, let's start with the, the overall score. I mean, it, it got a 7.95, so it's... it's uh pretty much a, a, a solid eight, which is a damn good score by this podcast. So uh, forgive us, please, listeners, if we, we still sound a little bit disappointed. <laughs> I think that's, well, look, it's Metallica. That's why. And actually, this is an album we used to love so much. Do we love it as much? No, well, we, you know, we, we, we still, we think this is a good album because, and we're pretty close on the scores because Steve gave it a 7.86. Mark a 7.99 and myself an 8 dead to come up with that 7.95 overall. So, I mean, it will do pretty well, but I think we're just you know, disappointed with the missteps and, uh, and how good an album it uh, really could have been if it were just that bit shorter. Mm-hmm. How many times have we said that? Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, I was going to say exactly the same thing. You you take four or five tracks off that album, and you have ended up with a very, if you took the right tracks off, a very very high scoring album. Yeah. That's the reality. All right. Well, we should find out then where it is going to sit. So let's head over to the Hall of Fame and see where all three of these albums have got on. It's time to put the rock in a hard place. Opening the Hall of Fame. So we've got 189 albums now in the, the Enter Sadman Hall of Fame. Read all about it at entersadman.co.uk as you wish. Let's just say the top 10, the top 20 haven't been affected by um, by this episode. But, you know, the, where these things finish is always great fun, always a great conversation point. Unsurprisingly, Break Like the Wind by Spinal Tap is um, towards the back end. Towards the rear end of, of affairs, with um, it's, it's finished a hundred. It could be endless, couldn't it? How much fun can you have with that yeah. album title? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's number one hundred and sixty-five, which is you know better than Chrome Molly. But further up in the in the serious sphere, um, Out of Hand by Coney Hatch. I think that's brilliant. I'm really pleased. Fifty-sixth um, with its score of seven point seven four, um, and the pick of the three, unsurprisingly, but by some distance not the pick of the Metallica albums we reviewed so far. Um, his load in at 39 seems almost daft, doesn't it? For the for the reasons that Richard's just alluded to. This is Metallica we're talking about. And yet, you know, they're behind Tesla and uh, Rat <laughs> and others, Ramstein. But there you go. 
them's them's the breaks, and that's um, and that's where Lowe's wound up, number thirty nine. I mean, to be honest, I think Lowe's has probably done better than I thought it was going to do in my head. So yeah, um, but I think it just proves what we said throughout. You know, and as Richard says, you know, we sound a bit disappointed with it. It's because it's a Metallica album, not you know. If that had been released by pretty much any other band, would have probably been slobbering all over it. So mm. yeah, it's um, it's there in the top forty. It won't stay in the top forty. Will it stay in the top hundred? I think that's arguable. Break like the wind is pretty much where I expect it to be. I'm really pleased. That you know, we all like Coney Hatch enough to put it in the top sixty because yeah. I think, you know, I think it's a great album. And um, again, you know, like Load, it, it's not going to stay there. But you know, it's uh, it's a good solid position for a band that I have a lot of affection for. So yeah, very happy about that. And there you have it, episode sixty-three. Event to Sadman. Um, three more albums dispatched into uh, our burgeoning hall of fame. Um, we'll do it all again in the not so distant future. Yeah, I doubt we'll have an episode quite as varied as this next time, but who knows? Depends what our tombola, depends what theme our tombola throws at us, um, and we will take our lead from it. Until then, we'll be delighted to have your company next time, um, and we'll look forward to doing it all again. Until then, all the best. Cheers. All music clips featured in the Enter Sad Men podcast appear within the context of criticism and or commentary, and as such are used under the fair use provisions of the exceptions to copyright rules of UK and international copyright law. To make sure the rock rolls forever on, Mark, Steve, and Rich urge all their listeners to show their love and support for the artists and writers featured on the show by purchasing the original music or subscribing to a licensed and regulated streaming service. 